If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld Podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It was a beautiful summer's day in Burr Marsh, Northern England, 1964. Jim Templeton, a Carlisle native, drove his daughter Elizabeth to nearby Solway Coast for a day of sunshine. As Elizabeth sat picking wildflowers, Jim took a picture of her in her new sundress. What he captured would quickly make headlines around the world. In the developed photograph, a tall figure lurks behind Elizabeth. He is dressed in a white suit with a dark black shield covering his face. He looks like an astronaut standing in the middle of a grassy knoll. Jim Templeton maintains that the astronaut was not in the picture frame when he snapped the photo, nor was he anywhere to be found moments later. It was as though he appeared and vanished in the blink of an eye. Even more unsettling, the film company Kodak verified the photograph as authentic. News spread like wildfire, and conspiracy theorists were quick to provide an answer. Jim had photographed a spaceman, a true blue alien. Soon after, Templeton reported being visited by two men in black suits who referred to one another as number nine and number 10. They claimed to be government agents and demanded to see the photograph of Elizabeth and the figure. They questioned Templeton about the events of the day. When Jim assured the agents that he did not see the figure personally, but merely after the photograph was developed, they grew angry and left. It's possible these men were part of the government, as they claimed, but some suspect they were part of a secret organization that has covered up alien encounters for decades. The organization so secretive it's known only by the suits they wear. The men in black. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And if you enjoy the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps us. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Today, we're talking about the Men in Black, a secret organization that is believed to cover up alien encounters and UFO sightings. They have appeared intermittently for nearly 70 years, and the origins and operations of their organization is shrouded in mystery. 
Their primary purpose seems to be UFO witness intimidation, although so little is known about the men in black, it's almost impossible to speculate. The official story is that, quite frankly, there isn't one. If this group is a government agency, they are so secretive about its operations that they refuse to acknowledge its existence. Officially, these encounters are hoaxes or pranks, though none of the reports have been proven as fake. Today, we'll examine the most famous reports of Men in Black. Next week, we'll examine conspiracy theories stating that the Men in Black are real and have a purpose here on Earth. A lot of the information we have on the supposed Men in Black comes from the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON. MUFON was established in 1969 by Walt Andrus, an aerial phenomenon investigator. They are the de facto experts on anything alien, and will be citing their research periodically throughout today's episode. They have called their work the Real X-Files. And there are many scientists who work within their organization, but in the spirit of transparency, since MUFON deals mostly with proving the existence of extraterrestrials and UFOs, it is widely criticized as bunk science. And we do not necessarily disagree. Part of the reason for this criticism could be because Andrus is also well known for taking the plot lines of the X-Files way too seriously. He believes that an alien race has been coming to our planet for years, with the singular goal of mating with humankind. Here he is, talking about that. These old fellows are all small in size, uh, child size, large heads, big black eyes, and uh, they cannot reproduce as humans do. Therefore, they've had to interbreed in order to uh, sustain their own species. You can see why people discount the organization. To go further, let's look at the first reported Men in Black hoax. June 21, 1947. Harold Dahl was working as a harbor patrolman on Maury Island, a serene harbor on Puget Sound, just south of Seattle. On this quiet summer's day, Dahl took out his patrol boat with two other men, his son and his dog. Around two in the afternoon, according to Dahl, his boat came around the east side of Maury Island. There, he saw six donut-shaped objects appear in the sky overhead, each about 100 feet in diameter. They hovered 2,000 feet above his boat. Dahl also reported seeing round portholes and an observation deck on the hovering crafts, according to MUFON. As he stared at the aircrafts, Dahl noticed that one of the hovering donuts began to descend closer to the water's surface. Worried, he hightailed it back to shore for fear of being in the aircraft's landing path. When the flying object was about 500 feet above sea level, it stopped and hovered over the bay. One of its portholes opened and the round craft began dumping debris into the bay, a lightweight white metal. Most sank into the water, although one piece of debris hit Dahl's dog, tragically killing him. Another piece of debris fell on his son's arm, burning his skin and leaving a welt. Dahl was able to recover that piece of the falling metal. He also began snapping pictures of the flying saucers for proof. After dumping the metal into the harbor, the craft took off, and all six of the round spacecrafts quickly disappeared. 
Dahl took his son to the hospital for treatment and reported the incident to his boss, Fred Chrisman. He gave Chrisman the camera along with his official report. The pictures did show unusual objects, but the photos were damaged when they were developed. They showed the same type of damage as film exposed to high levels of radiation. Chrisman claims he did not believe Dahl's story, but as it was an official incident report, he dutifully went to Maury Island to take rock samples from the site and investigate his co-worker's experience. While he was there, one of the donut-shaped aircraft showed up as if watching him collect his evidence. Chrisman was unsettled, but Dahl was about to have an even stranger encounter. The next morning, Harold Dahl reports being visited by a man in a black suit who suggested they go to breakfast together. While at breakfast, Dahl maintains that the man in black did not ask him any questions. Rather, he reiterated in detail the entire account of the day before, then threatened Dahl's son if Dahl told anyone else about the incident at Maury Island. Apparently satisfied with his threats, the man in black left never to be seen again. But nobody silences Harold Dahl. He and Chrisman decided to go public. They assembled an evidence packet for Ray Palmer, a publisher in Chicago. They sent him the metal debris and a written statement about the oddities they had experienced a few days previous on July 21st and 22nd, 1947. Considering someone threatened the safety of his son if Dahl told anyone about the encounter, it's worth noting that he turned to the press pretty quickly. Perhaps, but nevertheless, Palmer received the parcel and contacted Kenneth Arnold, a UFO researcher working in Tacoma, Washington. Palmer asked Arnold to go out and investigate Dahl's claims. By the time Arnold arrived, Dahl claimed his son had recently gone missing, but didn't seem to be doing much to find him. Later that summer, his son would be found serving tables in Montana, claiming he had no idea how he got there. If that's true, it's further proof that something spooky happened on Maury Island in 1947. But it seems strange that Dahl would be more preoccupied with the alien investigation than he would be with the disappearance of his only kid. And his son's explanation sounds equally suspect, why wouldn't he have called home or left Montana? What kept him there? Frankly, it sounds a little bit like a smart line a runaway teen could use to get out of trouble. Hmm. Nevertheless, Arnold arrived on Maury Island in late July 1947 and began collecting samples from Dahl's boat and the rocks on shore. He also conducted interviews with Dahl and Chrisman. Chrisman never mentioned any men in black visiting him, but Dahl gave a full account of his breakfast spent with the man in a sharp suit. This was the first time a story of mysterious men in black suits would hit public record. Something to remember is how mundane and generic the description of the man in black who visited Dahl was. It's a great benchmark as the description of these agents begins to morph over time. We should also point out that, oddly, the other two men who were reportedly in Dahl's boat never came forward to speak with investigators or Kenneth Arnold. You would think that if they experienced the same thing as Dahl, they would want to corroborate his story. Unless the men in dark suits also threatened those men into silence. But again, that's speculation, and not part of the verifiable facts of this story, which get even weirder. On July 31st, 1947, 
Harold Dahl was visited by Captain Lee Davidson and First Lieutenant Frank Brown, pilots and intelligence specialists with the United States Air Force. They contacted Arnold and Chrisman, telling them that they believed there might be something to their story and asked for a meeting. The pilots met with Arnold and Chrisman for several hours and even took some of the collected metal fragments on board their aircraft, a B-25 bomber, which they flew with two other men. Twenty minutes after takeoff, the airplane crashed into the sea near Centralia, Washington. The other two crew members were able to exit the aircraft, deploy parachutes and survive, but both Davidson and Brown were killed in the crash. Witnesses to the crash reported hearing anti-aircraft guns shoot the plane down. And remember, this took place in 1947, just after World War II. It's not unreasonable to assume that some civilians would have served in the war effort in some capacity and recognized the sound of anti-aircraft gunshots. Officially, the Air Force called the crash a terrible accident and maintains that it was an unlucky happenstance. One of the aircraft's engines caught fire. The other two men in the plane were able to parachute to safety, but before Brown and Davidson could follow, a wing broke off and crashed into the tail section, sending the plane into a spin. Davidson and Brown were trapped inside and were taken down with the plane. Davidson and Brown weren't able to report what they'd seen or learned on Maury Island before they died, and no other Air Force officials came to speak with Dahl or Chrisman. Nevertheless, later that summer, another Air Force official working in tandem with FBI investigators concluded that Dahl and Chrisman had fabricated the events on July 21st and 22nd, and that there were no piles of metal on Maury Island. In fact, the metal doll had provided was slag from a metal smelter. By this time, the story of the Maury Island incident was already making its way around conspiracy circles and creating fluff pieces for the local news. The incident faded away when both the Air Force and the FBI concluded that the Washington men had created a hoax for attention, which is the story most widely believed today. There are a myriad of oddities and inconsistencies in this story, so it's not a stretch to say it was a hoax. But it's also hard to ignore the fact that the Air Force and FBI made a visit. Why would they follow up so diligently if this was a complete fabrication? This story is the first recorded encounter with the Men in Black, a name that was given to them over time by the people who encountered them. The organization's existence has been repeatedly denied by the U.S. government and called fake, but in fairness to those that believe in the agency, so is the existence of Area 51 until 2005. To understand the purpose of the Men in Black, we have to piece together clues from encounters with civilians and the circumstances surrounding those encounters. For Harold Dahl, the MIB showed up soon after he spotted six UFOs in the sky— But moving into the early 50s, the men in black seemed to show up for different reasons. In the early 1950s, a man named Albert Bender created the International Flying Saucer Bureau, a small organization that published a magazine called Space Review. Bender was a ufologist, or a person who studies and researches possible alien activity on Earth. The purpose of Bender's organization and magazine was to publish information on flying saucers and create a written record of these sightings and accounts. Bender claims that in 1953, 
he was visited by three men in dark suits. They threatened him to stop publishing his magazine and to discard any information he had on alien encounters. Shortly after, Bender shut down his publication. Skeptics of UFO activity and critics of Bender in the ufologist community are quick to point out that Bender's magazine was losing money and was on the verge of collapsing. So this may have been a ploy for magazine sales or a way of avoiding defeat. They cite the fact that Bender wasn't able to offer any proof of his encounter with the men in black. In 1963, Bender wrote a book on his experience with the three strange men that showed up at his doorstep a decade previous. In it, he suggests that the men in suits could have been extraterrestrial visitors with a vested interest in keeping their existence secret. Because Bender's publication was getting close to proving extraterrestrial activity on Earth, they felt threatened and aimed to shut him down. The book also added new details, saying that the three men were accompanied by, quote, three beautiful women dressed in tight white uniforms. Bender's book made a few waves. It also emboldened more people in fringe groups to come forward with stories of UFO sightings and consequent visits from the men in black. The uptick in accounts muddied the waters on what might be considered legitimate UFO or MIB sightings. Because of Bender, anyone in one of these fringe groups could say they had been threatened into silence or had any evidence destroyed by the men in black to give their story credibility within the UFO community. Generally, most of these stories are considered fake, except by more extreme UFO believers. For context, only 47% of Americans currently believe in UFOs, and it's believed that a smaller percentage of Americans believed in UFOs in the 1950s. Even still, only 20% of Americans believe aliens have ever been to Earth, and even fewer believe they've seen an alien or UFO. Up until this point, the men in black have only been seen twice, and their appearance and manner has stayed consistent throughout these two accounts. However, as we move into the 1960s, there is an important shift in the description of the MIB agent's appearance. They also start to act a little otherworldly. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to the story. The Men in Black next crop up in Toledo, Ohio, 1967. Robert Richardson was driving his car through the outskirts of the city at night. Suddenly, he hit something that immediately vanished, something he would later believe to be a UFO. He jumped out of his car to see if something had somehow gotten stuck beneath his wheel, but there was nothing. He was completely alone. He claims he found a small chunk of a lightweight metal on the ground, but that was it. A few days later, Richardson recalls two men in black suits, hats, and sunglasses pulling up to his home in a 1953 black Cadillac. It was nearly 11 p.m. when they knocked on the door and began to interrogate Richardson about his car crash. They also demanded he hand over the metal. When Richardson said he had sent the metal out for analysis, they threatened to harm his wife if he didn't retrieve the metal from the lab and turn it over. He agreed to do so and never heard from the agents again. It's clear at this point that if the men in black exist, their primary purpose is to squelch witness testimony on inexplicable encounters. In his 2011 book, 
The Real Men in Black, author Nick Redfern attempts to give us some insight on what might be going on behind the scenes. Redfern writes, Quote, People who have been visited by MIB tend to fall into two categories. One is the UFO witnesses. The other category is researchers. What we have, I'm pretty sure, is a sort of covert department or office or personnel within the official infrastructure, end quote. That makes sense, but some MIB encounters crossed a line between intimidating government agency and downright creepy. Such was the case of Dr. Herbert Hopkins, a family physician practicing in Old Orchard Beach, Maine. He was home alone on the night of September 11, 1976, studying a recent UFO incident that he had been following for a few weeks. He had a penchant for UFO encounters and enjoyed looking into them in his free time. That night, he received a call from a man who identified himself as a representative from New Jersey's UFO organization, a group that Hopkins would later learn was phony. He asked if he could come over and discuss Hopkins' UFO research with him. With a sinking feeling in his stomach, Hopkins went to the window to see the man outside already coming up the steps. Even if the man was phoning from next door, there was no way he would have been able to make it all the way to Hopkins' front steps in the time it took for Hopkins to cross his living room. A distressed Hopkins noted that the man was dressed in black, head to toe, except for a crisp white button-up shirt. Hopkins described the man as bald as an egg and completely hairless, as though he had alopecia. He was also extremely pale. The only color on his face was ruby red lips. His voice was monotone, almost like a recording or a mechanical voice. And while we're all used to Siri today, remember, this was 1976, long before that kind of technology was available. Hopkins and the man discussed the UFO sighting and some of Hopkins' other research. For the entirety of the encounter, the man sat motionless, like a ventriloquist dummy. He also wore suede gray gloves that stained red when the man wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. It was like the man was wearing lipstick. Even more unnerving, the man had no lips, just lipstick applied where lips should have been. The stranger asked Hopkins for a coin. Hopkins took a penny out of his pocket and went to give it to the stranger. Instead, the strange man asked Hopkins to stare at the penny. As Hopkins did so, the copper penny slowly turned silver. Then the silver faded to blue, and the penny dematerialized in between his fingers. It was completely gone. The stranger asked Hopkins to destroy all his UFO research and materials. He left Hopkins' house, quickly rounding the corner on the side of Hopkins' house, and disappearing into a bright light. When the stranger had left, a terrified Hopkins destroyed all UFO materials in his possession, and with it, any proof the encounter had happened. It's hard to gloss over the fact that none of these encounters have proof. The men in black are either very good at covering their tracks or completely made up. It is also suspect that every time someone is visited by the men in black, the details of their physical appearance and behavior seems to build on what the last person said, then expand or heighten slightly. It's like a decades-long game of telephone. 
In 1947, Dahl described someone who could very easily fit the profile of a government official, a man in a black suit. The next time they pop up, the men in black are dressed the same but mildly more intimidating. By the time we get to 1967, not only are they physically intimidating, but their appearance is utterly unsettling. It's hard to tell what could be real and what might be a game of UFO believer one-upping. Additionally, as we move overseas, the physical appearance of the men in black shifts only slightly, but their abilities seem entirely different, almost otherworldly. In Scotland in 1979, a cryptozoologist named Frederick Holliday suffered an intimidating experience with a man in a black suit. He was on the Loch Ness, searching for evidence of its famed monster, when he looked toward a nearby hill. He locked eyes with a tall, despondent man standing motionless on the hillside, dressed in a black suit. Holiday was used to seeing people out enjoying the lake. After all, it's a famous tourist attraction and stunning place to visit. But Holiday recalls that there was something different about this man, something much more eerie and malicious. The man kept unblinking eye contact for several minutes as Holiday grew increasingly disturbed. Before he could take a picture or fully react, he remembers hearing a bizarre noise offshore, and in the moment he turned to look, the man disappeared as mysteriously as he'd appeared moments before. Exactly one year later, in 1980, Holiday was back on the lock, continuing his work. There, he suffered a heart attack. As he was being carried to the ambulance, he passed over the exact place where he claimed the stranger was standing and felt the same malevolence he had felt exactly a year before. These men in black seem to find people when they are isolated and not only bring with them a foreboding sense of dread, but in some cases also contain some kind of supernatural ability. But a mysterious heart attack is not the extent to which the men in black have been reported to manipulate time and space. There are actually a few accounts of the men in black bending the laws of physics, or even borderline cursing those who dare to discover their secrets. Again, I'm noting that these abilities seem to crop up after the physical appearance of the men in black had evolved into something almost alien, almost like a natural heightening of the lore surrounding this agency. Also, in 1980, a professor named Peter Reutsevich reported an unusual incident in his college library. It was a late night, and he was reading a book on UFOs that a colleague had recommended. After a few moments, Reutsevich noticed that a man was sitting across from him. Reutsevich put down his book, and the man began to question him on its contents. He asked whether Reutsevich had seen a UFO or whether he was merely interested in alien activity. When Reutsevich responded that he wasn't very interested in the subject matter, the man grew angry, asking him how he could be so uninterested in, quote, the most important facts of the century, end quote. But Reutsevich maintained that this wasn't really his thing. Seeming satisfied, the man left. Soon after the strange man's departure, Reutsevich stood up to stretch his legs. As he walked past the bookshelves, the return cart, and the front desk, he slowly began to realize that he was utterly alone. Not another soul in the library to be found, despite its buzzing activity only an hour beforehand. 
unsettled, he sat down and tried to calm himself. He returned to his chair and started to gather his belongings, feeling an urge to leave the library. By the time he left moments later, everyone was back, as though they'd never been gone at all. It was as though those 45 minutes of isolation had taken place in a vacuum, a world where Roitsevich was the only citizen. Then he was dumped back into normal time as though nothing had ever happened. Of course, it's a bold assertion to suggest that the men in black temporarily took Roitsevich to another dimension, even if Roitsevich felt like something similar had happened. It's also strange that in these instances, the men in black were not approaching people in their homes, as they have in the United States. Well, there could be a reason for that. In January 1997, a man named William Shear had his one such run-in with the MIB. He lived in Essex, England, and claimed to have seen a UFO on January 15th. Four days later, men in dark gray suits showed up at his house. Shear remembers that one of the men stayed in the car while the other met Shear on the porch. He immediately began questioning Shear about his experience with the UFO. However, what struck Shear as the most unnerving part of this visit is that the man on his porch seemed far less concerned with Shear's answers to his questions and far more invested in gaining permission to enter Shear's home. It was though he had to be invited in like a vampire. I want to point out that Shearer zeroed in on the monotone voice and disturbing appearance of the men in black, characteristics that have been reported consistently since Bender first published his book detailing his own MIB encounter. The book might be a spot-on description of MIB modus operandi, but it's also not very far-fetched to wonder if everyone's accounts started to sync up so nicely because they had the same blueprint. Regardless... Shear was understandably freaked out by the intimidating nature of the men on his doorstep. He refused them entry into his home, and they angrily promised to return. Not long afterwards, the men showed up at Shear's workplace. They spoke to him and asked for permission to come to his home. The men said they wanted to discuss UFOs and alien research that Shear may possibly have. This time, when Shear turned them down, they never showed back up. However, Shear believes that since that day, his phone has been tapped. So far, they've only visited the U.S. and the U.K., two English-speaking countries with a fairly high volume of information exchange. If they are a U.S. government agency, it doesn't necessarily make sense that they would be visiting the U.K. And if they're an alien race, as Bender suggests... Why only the U.S. and U.K.? Why wouldn't they pop up in other cultures as well? If aliens really are walking among us, it seems odd they chose to reside in two countries with some of the most advanced tools for information exchange, where they could most easily be found out. I agree, it's not the easiest way to stay covert. But whatever the reason, sightings of the men in black have been reported across the United States in the wake of UFO sightings for 71 years. Most key witnesses have been either relatively unknown or problematic, given inconsistencies in their story or the attention they sought after the encounter. However, there is one encounter with the men in black that comes from someone who already had the fame and notoriety that hoaxers could have been seeking and truly had no reason to lie. 
That witness in question is Saturday Night Live alumni Dan Aykroyd, better known for his role in the movie Ghostbusters. The story goes that Aykroyd has always had an intense interest in alien activity and UFOs. His fascination started way back in 1952, when he saw a photograph of mysterious lights over Capitol Hill. The story behind the photo is that the unidentified fast-moving objects had to be chased off by fighter jets. Aykroyd was also a huge fan of sci-fi films, specifically The Day the Earth Stood Still. In the mid-1980s, he had a first-hand encounter with UFOs in upstate New York. Aykroyd states that he woke up panicked in the middle of the night. He remembers telling his wife that, quote, they are calling me, I want to go outside, end quote. When he got outside, he saw a pink spiral over the Great Lakes. After speaking with others who saw the spiral, he learned that many others in the area felt a similar desire to go outside. This only solidified Aykroyd's belief in UFOs and alien technology. In 2005, he produced a documentary on the topic entitled Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs. He even spent several years as the Hollywood representative of the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, the first name in all things extraterrestrial. Aykroyd asserts that he has seen four UFOs firsthand. And while he admits that he cannot confirm they are alien, he also cannot confirm they are Air Force. Aykroyd believes that the government is aware of the alien UFOs that come to Earth from time to time, but are covering up their existence as part of a power grab. Aykroyd asserts that if the public knew about an alien race capable of traveling to our planet, they would stop looking to the government for guidance, but instead turn to the alien race. The government fears losing its power and control. To quote Aykroyd, I believe there are probably many species coming and going, and that the Air Force is very interested, but they can't come out and say. Because then you're going to go, well, wait a minute, the cop on the street, the president, you don't got the power. They've got the power. You'd have a complete breakdown of society. But Aykroyd's closest encounter with the extraterrestrials came in early 2005, when he was producing a television series called Out There, which would act as an in-depth documentary on his life's work researching aliens and UFOs. One afternoon, he received a call from singer Britney Spears. The two were friendly, as he had starred as her dad in the movie Crossroads a few years previous. Spears had called Aykroyd to ask if he'd consider appearing on Saturday Night Live with her when she hosted in a few weeks' time. As he stood talking to her on the sidewalk, he recalls looking across the street and seeing a tall, pale man dressed in a sharp black suit staring at him malevolently. They made uninterrupted eye contact for a few moments. Then the man jumped in a black car and drove away. A few hours later, Aykroyd learned that his show had been canceled. Not only had it been canceled, but they were told to not record another thing whatsoever. Officially, the network had no faith in Out There. The timing is especially suspicious, given that they were about to start interviewing Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project. His project aims to entice Congress to hold open, secrecy-free hearings on extraterrestrial activity on Earth, as well as develop comprehensive legislation to allow for peaceful exploration of space. 
In other words, he's trying to avoid an actual Star Wars. He was also supposedly poised to disclose a monumental amount of insider information on UFO activity and on witness testimony. Much of this information can be found on his website and in other interviews and talks on YouTube, though none of these platforms has garnered the attention that a produced television show may have. His project also tries to uncover what energy solutions extraterrestrial beings may bring with them. His hopes in this regard are exceptionally high. Here he is talking about it. Technologies connected to UFO and extraterrestrial vehicles, if declassified and used for peaceful energy generation and propulsion, would solve the looming energy crisis definitively, would end global warming, would correct the environmental challenges that the Earth is facing. As you can hear, Greer is a well-spoken, educated man who lends credence to his cause. So the timing of Ackroyd's show cancellation right before the planned interview with Greer is suspicious. Although Ackroyd had long been vocal about his absolute belief in UFOs, it's not impossible to believe that the encounter could have been a fan who knew Ackroyd would appreciate a sighting of the men in black. The timing could have been pure coincidence. Perhaps, but no explanation was ever offered as to why the production was canceled so suddenly. Productions are shut down all the time in the television industry, but there is usually an explanation, especially with a heavy hitter like Dan Aykroyd at the helm. The project was bound to get the public's attention. Also, if these aliens are so powerful, why cooperate with the government at all? They could reveal themselves on their own terms. There are several schools of thought on what the relationship is between aliens, the men in black, and the United States government. But perhaps the most endearing of these comes from Dan Aykroyd himself. Quote, They have technology better than ours, but they don't paint like Renoir. They don't dance like Mick Jagger. They don't write like William Faulkner. They may have gelatinous pools and crystal mountains, and they've got technology to flip from planet to planet or dimension to dimension, but Keith Richards didn't come from there, end quote. It is a beautiful thought that humans are our own greatest resource. But whatever the reason for extraterrestrial visits, the men in black seem to be masters of intimidation and cover-ups. In fact, up until this point, every sighting of them has been devoid of concrete proof, which leaves a lot of speculation about their existence. However, in October 2008, the men in black were possibly caught on camera for the first time. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Now our story continues. Provided the 2008 camera footage is undoctored and authentic, it very well could have captured the men in black, thus providing definitive proof that the organization exists. Two MIB agents were caught entering a hotel in Niagara Falls, where they proceeded to harass the hotel staff for nearly an hour before finally taking their leave. But if the video evidence is to be believed, then the testimony of the hotel staff only fuels more questions than provides answers. At the beginning of October 2008, hotel manager Shane Sovar and a security guard for their Niagara Falls hotel reported seeing a triangular UFO outside the building. 
Full disclosure, the name of the hotel Sovar managed was never printed anywhere, although as Shane Sovar on LinkedIn does currently manage the Sheraton Fallview Hotel in Ontario. That said, photographs of the lobby of that hotel don't match the lobby shown in the security camera footage. Well, the lobby could have undergone a renovation in the past 10 years. Or it might be the wrong hotel altogether. Well, two weeks later, on October 14, 2008, two men in black visited the hotel looking for Shane, who was not on site that day. The two men of identical height and stature walk in single file, wearing black suits hats, sunglasses, and trench coats. They take about five seconds to walk through the doors and out of sight. According to the hotel staff, the two men terrorized them for the better part of an hour. It got very creepy. First, the bellboy and a female employee of the hotel were both interrogated as to the whereabouts of Sovar and the security guard, both of whom had the day off. Both the bellboy and the female employee described the men as tall, with neatly tailored black suits, ruby red lips, fake, taut skin, and no hair whatsoever. They also recall the men spoke in low, mechanical voices, almost like robots. This was all further unnerving to these employees, as they had been uninvolved in the UFO sighting and were unaware of their boss's connection to the possible UFO. The woman who spoke with them longest also reported that she felt as though they could read her mind. She admitted profusely that it sounds utterly insane, but she truly felt like these men could sense her thoughts, and she recalls trying to think of anything but so far as they questioned her. The men in black identified themselves as members of the government and referred to one another with numbers instead of names. After harassing and terrifying the staff, They eventually left the hotel, although no security footage shows their departure. In fact, there is no further security footage of the two men anywhere inside the hotel. In the annals of the internet, many armchair sleuths have pointed out that this could be because no other footage exists, or because the hotel refuses to release the footage. This has led some to believe that it was a staged hoax used to drum up business during tourist season. But hoax or not, there should at least be other security footage of the men somewhere else in the hotel. They couldn't have just disappeared. Furthermore, it seems odd that the men in black would visit these men at work. In all the instances we have of men in black intimidation tactics, they have always approached the person in question when they are isolated and vulnerable, most usually at home. Furthermore, how did they miss the days that both men would be there? This seems like shoddy work. The question is, who slacked off? A couple of hoaxers or the United States government? So far, we've established what the men in black look like and, to the best of our ability, identified the persons they visit and the events that prompt their visits. But there's one question we've yet to address. Why are the men in black so purposefully identifiable? And why do they rely on intimidation tactics to silence alien investigators? That is a secret that the government had buried so deep only an expert hacker could leak it. In 2013, a government whistleblower finally brought these secrets to the surface. 
Over the past 70 years, the men in black have targeted numerous people who have experienced extraterrestrial activity and plan to talk about their experiences on a public scale. This has spurred endless theories on who these strange men are and what they want. Perhaps our best lead came from Edward Snowden, who was infamous for leaking top-secret classified documents to the public in 2013. Buried in the avalanche of documents is one presentation that could shed light on whether the men in black definitively exist and whether they are a government agency. Among the Snowden documents were images from a PowerPoint presentation entitled The Art of Deception, Training for a New Generation of Online Covert Operations. The presentation was authored by GCHQ, or Government Communication Headquarters. The images contained a myriad of random images, including camouflaged insects, women in burqas, a complex diagram with military jargon strewn across, and a series of slides that bore slogans like Disruption Operational Playbook, Swap the Real for the False, and vice versa. People make decisions as part of groups, and We want to build cyber magicians. Among the images are three photographs of UFOs. They are the classic donut-shaped flying saucers like the ones that Harold Dahl described in 1947. But upon closer inspection, the viewer will note that the UFOs are fake. One is actually a hubcap, the next a bunch of balloons in the sky, and the third a seagull. But from the right angle, they are truly deceptive and convincing. The presentation suggested something interesting. Specifically, that UFO believers are a gullible group of people searching for answers or a larger meaning, and as such, are susceptible to manipulation. Because they long to have their experiences validated and to have concrete evidence that something beyond the human race exists, They are desperate to believe even the faultiest evidence to support their theories. And when it comes to faulty evidence, there are few topics in history that have been more explored to exhaustion. Between alien abductions, Area 51, and the men in black, the conspiracy theories concerning alien activity have been run through the rumor mill and exploited by pop culture relentlessly. A new documentary, Mirage Men, dissects this presentation and arrives at an interesting theory. Could the U.S. government actually be the driving force behind alien folklore? The Mirage Men producers believe so. The documentary team captures a revealing interview with former Air Force Special Investigations Officer Richard Doty, who was active in the 1980s. During the interview, Doty discusses his time spent as a U.S. government official infiltrating UFO enthusiast circles and manipulating them to the government's own ends. He was gaining the trust of the men and women who not only believed in alien encounters, but were actively investigating crash sites, unusual goings-on, and possible alien abductions. According to Doty, these events were not alien-related at all. They were top-secret Cold War military projects. Discovery of these projects by Soviet intelligence could be disastrous. Misinformation was necessary for national security. Doty recalls bargaining with these UFO enthusiast groups, 
divulging that he was government personnel and in exchange for their information, he would divulge what was really going on with UFOs and alien life forms on Earth. According to Doty, this tactic always worked like a charm. From there, Doty and his comrades would collect the investigative information from the ufologist and send it back to Air Force Intelligence. They would then feed the ufologist lies and half-truths on UFO activity, correctly assuming that the ufologist's overactive imagination would fill in the blanks. In this way, the ufologist would return to his people with insider information and gain notoriety and respect in his field. It incentivized him to continue to feed Doty information. Essentially, they opened channels of communication for alien enthusiasts to directly alert the military when anyone was getting too close to a top-secret mission or ran the risk of unearthing advanced military technology. The Mirage Men cite a well-known case from 1979 involving an electronics entrepreneur named Paul Benowitz. Benowitz lived and worked in New Mexico. In 1979, Benowitz reported seeing strange lights across the night sky and began to pick up a weird transmission in his radio equipment. Benowitz worked across the road from Kirtland Air Force Base, which would be the most logical source of the chatter, but Benowitz convinced himself that the chatter was alien in origin. Excited, Benowitz contacted the Air Force Base to alert them to the extraterrestrial activity he'd been picking up. The Air Force quickly realized that the chatter Benowitz was picking up was far from alien. Rather, he was inadvertently eavesdropping on the United States Air Force. However, instead of giving him orders to stop, the Air Force feigned interest in Benowitz's findings and encouraged him to report further chatter. When Benowitz stopped reporting alien activity, the Air Force would know their activities were secure. Emboldened, Benowitz began to dig deeper, listening in every night and attempting to interpret his findings. A few years later, Benowitz was convinced that the aliens were planning to invade. All the while, he was under heavy surveillance from the military. They planted fake props for Benowitz to discover and gave him phony computer software that could interpret some of the signals he was intercepting. Tragically, this threw him into a manic state. The mania grew so severe that in 1988, Benowitz's family was forced to check him into a psychiatric hospital. While this is the most famous case of government manipulation of susceptible believers, it is far from the only example. Around the same time that Benowitz began picking up Air Force chatter, the military ran tests for experimental silent helicopters and purposefully attached flashing lights to the aircraft to fool any civilians that might see the aircraft. Mark Pilkington, writer of the book Mirage Men that inspired the documentary, was the first to interview Rick Doty, who infiltrated the conspiracy theorist circles. He said of Doty, quote, some of what he said was true, and I'm sure a lot of it wasn't. I have no doubt Rick was at the bottom of a ladder that stretches all the way to Washington, end quote. The takeaway here is that the men in black operate with psychological warfare. They target those who desperately want to believe in UFOs or are gullible in a way that makes them susceptible to manipulation. It sounds cruel, but it's also highly effective. 
Once people who generally operate on the fringe of society become associated with aliens, society at large is more hesitant to believe any encounters they may have had. It's a double-edged sword that the men in black have sharpened to perfection. So, to recap, what do we officially know about the men in black, if they do exist? We know that they were first sighted in 1947 and first named in 1953. They appear about every five to ten years to terrorize a UFO witness into silence. That they're reported as being tall, robotic, almost alien, hairless, and somewhat identical. We also know that they may be used by the government to purposely foster alien conspiracies and misdirect attention away from government operations, which seems like the most plausible and verifiable story. But we're not interested in plausible stories, which is why we're sticking to the official story. This government agency does not exist. Officially, all the stories we cover today are hoaxes. But next week, we'll focus on the conspiracy theories surrounding the personnel makeup and daily operations of the men in black. First, we'll explore the claims that the real aim of the men in black is global domination. Conspiracy theory number one. Are the men in black actually a shadow government that controls our entire planet from behind the scenes, a dictatorship ruling just beneath the surface? Next, we'll get to the bottom of their odd appearance and unsettling demeanor. Conspiracy theory number two. Are the men in black an alien race living on Earth to glean our secrets, weapons, and culture while fighting to maintain their invisibility? And finally, Conspiracy theory number three. Are the men in black part of a government conspiracy to cover up alien activity? For 70 years, the men in black have terrorized those who have seen UFO activity or are actively investigating the possibility of alien life on this planet. Next week, we'll explore the conspiracy theories that try to explain this stealth organization and attempt to pull these mysterious men out of the shadows. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Tell us your favorite Conspiracy Theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week as we continue our second look at the mysterious men in black. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Aaron Lan and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.